Um, welcome to the first episode of Feminized. Um, as I mentioned in the trailer, we are going to have Heather Brooke here, who is the inspiration for this podcast. Um, so she's going to be our first guest, and we're really, really excited to have her here. So hi, Heather. Hi. Hi. Great to be here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your journey to where you are now. How did you become decide to become a, an investigative reporter? It's not really something that people kind of wake up one day and go, yes, this is what I want to do. Um, so how did you kind of get to now? Yeah, well, I mean, journalism was a bit different when I was kind of coming up. There, there wasn't like the sort of specialized training to be an investigative journalist. There was still this sort of apprenticeship type path. So, I mean, I, I, I was a little bit professionalized because in America at that point you, you did sort of get into the profession usually through university so I did a double degree in journalism and politics and I knew from really like since I was probably 10 that I wanted to be a writer and a journalist um, I read this book which I just recently read again called Harriet the Spy by <laughs> Louise Fitzhugh and I read that book and I thought oh my god this is like my inspiration this is exactly the person that I am and who I want to be in my you know and sort of that's sort of my career trajectory um, so I don't know if you've read this book it's a, it's a young adult book like for kids but it's about a young girl who sort of spies on her neighbors and writes everything in a notebook and is constantly like thinking about how to describe things and people and figure out what's going on in her like in her neighborhood in New York City anyway it's a great, it's a great story it's a great inspiration I think yeah so so since, as soon as I read that book, I thought, wow, that's, like, I know what my career is now. I literally knew the day I read, like, finished that book, like, that is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a journalist and a writer. And so I worked for my high school newspaper, and then I went to university. And originally, um, I had a mom who was very feminist and wanted me to kind of break the mold on, like, in, in, in sort of, like, now we call them STEM subjects. But she... She was quite scientific, my mom, and she had always felt uh, like that path wasn't open to her as a, as a young person. And so she was quite keen that I go into science and math. And so when I actually first went to university, I was a physics major and on course to be doing astrophysics of all weird things. And uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a very big path change, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that was my original like pre-major when I went to... University of Washington in Seattle, and I, um, in American liberal arts colleges, you have to, be, it's four years, but for the first two years, you kind of do all these prerequisites mm -hmm. across, you know, all different topics, and I did the things that I, I mean, I had to do all my math and, and physics classes, but I was also doing a lot of English literature, and there, there and, and I wasn't doing any journalism classes, but there was this campus university newspaper called The Daily, and I saw an ad for a part-time job as the office manager in this newspaper, and so I applied, and I got it, and I sort of watched all the reporters, you know, they were just fellow students, but I watched all these fellow reporters around me, and I just thought they were the coolest people I'd ever seen in my life, and it was the coolest, like, office, it was, this, it was like this big office, all the walls were covered in political graffiti. Wow. Um, and uh, everybody had, like, opinions, and they were incredibly sort of erudite. And, uh, like, the arts editor was always getting free tickets to the shows and records and everything. Free tickets are the best <laughs> part of journalism. Yeah, They're so, the best. <laughs> so I sort of volunteered and said, oh, could I, could I do something? And, 
And so they said, okay. Um, so my first article was actually a restaurant review. Wow. Yeah, and I, and I, I remember I did it and I thought, wow, so not only did I, and I got paid for this article as well, because it was wow. quite, and quite well paid. So not only did I get like a free meal out of this gig, I also got paid. And that really cemented, like, I like, thought, this, this is, is what I want to do. And I was so, in, in, like, insanely curious when I was, when I was young. I mean, I still am. But I thought this job is just made for me because I basically have a license to be as nosy as I want and get paid for it. Um, and I really like to get into the sort of, I don't know, the dark corners of life. I think as I... Um, that also kind of comes from a bit of your like scientific kind of thing, the curiosity, the kind of wanting to know more and kind of peek and find out and discover. I think it's, it's, it's an interesting connection. Yeah, there, there is definitely... Uh, a lot of sort of cross-fertilization, I think, between investigative journalism and the scientific method, yeah. because in both of them, uh, and when I teach it, I teach it this way, it's like you have a hypothesis. It's not like you just are investigating in a vacuum, like you actually have a hypothesis, you know, you have a, a sort of a, um, hunch or, a, you know, a sort of thought that you think, well, I think this is, so I think something dodgy is happening here, or I think some, there's a problem, um, and then you go out and test it. You know, you like run tests to yeah. see, like, well, is it really a problem? And if so, how did it, why is it there? How did it get caused? Who's responsible? How can it be fixed? Um, so it's quite, it is actually quite methodical, but unlike the, the science, um, you're also telling a story, and in order to do so, you really have to engage with other people yeah. in quite an, an you know, emotional way, and then you have to tell a compelling story. So for me, it was, initially, I wasn't doing an I mean, I, wouldn't, I wasn't sort of classed as an investigative reporter. I was just a, a general assignment reporter for a newspaper. Then I was sort of political reporter for a while. And then I was a crime reporter. And, um, and that was... And so usually I was just doing breaking news, which is what young reporters do, yeah. you know, at the start of their career anyway. And it's great training. But, but definitely as I was doing it for, like, like, coming into, like, four years doing it, I sort of thought, you know, I feel like I'm writing the same formulaic formulaic stories. Um, I was covering a lot of drive-by shootings, for example. I was working at a job in South Carolina, and there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of violence, and which made it great if you were a crime reporter, because you, you know, had a lot to cover, and I would get on the front pages a lot. But it was like the same type of violence that I kept seeing, like a lot of black-on-black crime, especially these drive-by shootings. Um, a lot of domestic violence, and I didn't feel like, I, w I felt like I was writing the same story with different people over and over again, and I wanted to kind of get to the bottom of why does this stuff keep happening. Did it take um, a bit of an emotional toll on you, kind of having to see these things happen over and over again, or are you were you able to kind of separate yourself as a reporter telling the story? When, when you're young... <laughs> I, and I think most young people, especially if they're in journalism, are like this. I was incredibly driven by ambition and ego. I was so sort of fueled to make it that I don't even know how much I noticed that. I mean, I'm sure I did, but if I did, I just compartmentalized it out, and I was just like writing my story, you know, just doing what I had to do. Certainly, as I got into my 30s, I couldn't do it in the same way. Like I was much more. Yeah, I couldn't sort of detach from people in the same way I could yeah. when I was younger. And I sort of saw the connections more. And um, I just, I, yeah, I wasn't as driven by ego or ambition anymore. I was driven by sort of, I don't know, meaning, uh, 
human connection, um, wanting to like wanting the world to be a better place, kinder, myself as well. Um, so, do you think it helped you become a better reporter? Kind of being able to see the human side of things more. Interesting question. There is, I think Graham Greene had it right when he said, like, every writer has a piece of ice in their heart. I think it is actually quite, it's kind of necessary. Um, otherwise, it's like being a surgeon. Like, if you really were super empathic, I don't know how good of a yeah, surgeon you'd be. Yeah, <laughs> you, like, crack somebody's chest open. You know, it's, um, it's the same with being a journalist. Like, you are cracking people's lives open quite a lot. And I, I feel like, actually, a bit of detachment is, is good for that um, but now I feel so I don't know for journalism I think it's it can it depends on what sort of journalist you are certainly for breaking news and and crime in particular I don't know how uh, I think you know a certain level of detachment is, will will sort of be good for you yeah. and a bit of shamelessness as well because you've got to do really you know quite embarrassing breaking social norms in order to try and get people to talk to you yeah. but then uh, you know, my metrics of success have changed, and I'm more interested in, in writing more meaningful work now. And for that, I think having a more empathy and a greater understanding and less driven by ego is is useful. Yeah. Um, so we were we were on the path to get to know your path into <laughs> investigative journalism. Um, so you were talking about your c- covering. In, in South Carolina was that kind of the initial point that you decided okay something there's a pattern here maybe I should you know delve a little bit deeper into this so the whole time I was working as a newspaper reporter I would do like newspaper reporter sorry in America at that time newspapers were seven day a week operations and on the Sunday it was it was a big paper and it was a chance for the reporter to kind of show their award-winning pieces yeah and so I was always you know striving to build up my portfolio and the the things that I wanted were these investigative pieces that would win awards um, so I was always doing um, some of those pieces you know as soon as I was a student and I actually when we get to the MP's expenses thing uh, that is actually a replica of a story I did when I was a student. Um, yeah, so I was I was an intern for the Spokesman Review, which is this newspaper in Spokane, Washington, and I did a big Sunday piece about MPs' travel expenses, and it, it came out of like an investigation I'd done about all their expenses. Um, so, you know, I was even, and I was probably only twenty or like twenty-one when I did that. So, um, so I was always doing stuff, and I did I did a couple big ones in South Carolina that I won awards for. So I did one about the way funeral homes work or don't, um, not regulated properly. So I covered this story about a, a family who had gone to the funeral of their father's grandfather. Um, and when they went there, it was, it was the guy was wearing their grandfather's suit, false teeth, glasses, but it was like a foot shorter and basically a different man and they were like hey this is not our grandfather and awkward (laughs) and the funeral home um, said oh you know during the embalming process people can change quite considerably and they're like they're not going to lose a foot of height and what had happened is they tried they they had made a mix up in the bodies they had actually cremated their grandfather and then this was some other guy the guy who was meant to be 
cremated, and they had tried to cover it up by basically dressing him up in all of their grandfather's clothes, including the false teeth, and trying to pretend that he was their grandfather. Anyway, the that would be, I think maybe like Kevin Hart or someone like that would write that and make it into like this amazing comedy, but in reality it's very, very, very sad. Yeah, it was, I mean it is a mad story, isn't it, that it actually happened, and his family were devastated because, you know, I mean not only by the, the fact that their grandfather had been cremated without actually any funeral, because he was cremated at the other wrong funeral. Um, but the fact that, that the funeral home had tried to cover it up. Anyway, so I, I looked into all this, and it ended up going like quite high up in the state legislature, and it forced them to pass some, uh, some new legislation around the regulation of funeral homes. So, yeah, so I was always kind of digging around as much as I could in the time that I had. <laughs> um, and why did you end up in London? I feel like you had s- such... At least it seems to me like a great footing to just become one of those like amazing like American journalists breaking like the new Watergate or <laughs> something like that. Why did you decide to move across the pond? Yeah, well, um, so several things happened at, at a certain point in my life. So the first thing was I started getting disillusioned with my industry, with journalism, particularly breaking news and and um, I was working in this small town newspaper in South Carolina and I, I'd been there about three or four years and I was ready to go like I was like you know, I need I'm to, done yeah I need to get out of this town and I need to be in like New York or Washington DC or Florida or some bigger you know bigger venue and newspapers were just like collapsing. Florida news are absolutely insane the amount oh, yeah. of times we hear about alligators walking across shops that would have been some very interesting yeah. material <laughs> yeah no I mean Florida was like the number one job place for yeah. me because if you're if you're a, especially a crime reporter like Florida is like the gold standard yeah. it's where you want to go because it's like the maddest stories and they always go national because they're so weird yeah I was looking around for jobs but it was the same time like newspapers were in a really bad state economically and uh, there was like barely any vacancies and when there was they were just so competitive and I was sort of like I had like limited patience at the same time so uh, at the same time my mom died in a car accident in America and she was my only relative that was living in America all the rest of my family live in Britain and that's why I'm a dual citizen and I wasn't particularly close to my mom but um the fact that like, I was then kind of alone in America, uh, I sort of just, uh, yeah, I, so it was this kind of like, I was disillusioned with my job, I didn't feel like I was getting a new job anytime soon, um, and then my mom died, and yeah, I think I was having like a bit of a breakdown, because I was covering like a lot of fatal car accidents doing that job. Oh my god, that's... Yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. I, I had like one particular case where... I went out, and this is only like weeks after my mom died, in a fatal car accident. And I, I was out on like the highway with, at a fatal car accident. And um, I think some mom came up to me, because I was usually sort of, you know, sort of mingling around outside the police line. And um, she came up to me and was like, oh my God, is my son okay? And I knew he was dead. Like I already actually knew that, but I didn't want to be the person to tell her that. And I said, oh, um, I mean, I just had to lie and say, I don't know, you'll, you'll need to ask the police. And I just felt really kind of emotionally devastated by it. Uh, and, and also the, the, the sort of managers at my paper were pretty 
corporate American and they were just like kind of heartless about time off like I wasn't getting any they wouldn't move me off this beat um, and I just at, at the end of it I just thought I can't I just I just I'm so done here yeah. and so I did a total I think you kind of I was 26 at the time um, and I just thought you know what I'm gonna go do a master's degree in English literature at Warwick University. <laughs> um, my cousin, a great change. <laughs> yeah, my cousin had done it, and I always wanted to be a novelist, and so I thought, well, I don't feel confident enough about my writing skills, so I'm going to do that. It's only a year, and I'll, I'll, I'll just take time out and reassess my life. Like, I was on such a firm track, like, I was going to be the next Bob Woodward, you know, I was, yeah. like, so determined, and then it just didn't pan out how I, how I expected which I think always happens to you when you're like in your mid to late 20s like reality starts to come at like full force into conflict with your idealism yeah. and you know it doesn't uh, the two <laughs> can't like yeah. stand together so I had to reassess and that's what I did um, and then I decided I would afterwards I, I liked Britain I would stay but I wasn't I wasn't doing any more journalism until about I don't know maybe like one or two years after I moved to London, yeah. And how, how was that? How was transitioning back? Well, I, I wasn't going to work in a newsroom again. I was, like, done with newsrooms because I just... Totally understand. <laughs> I thought they were toxic environments in a lot of ways. And they just... And, and that kind of daily journalism just eats your life. Like, it just eats you for breakfast and spits you out. And I thought, I just don't want to do that again. So I thought, I really want to write books. That's That's, like... And I want to do what I want to do. I've always been like quite single-minded and yeah. stubborn. And, and so I, I, I sort of heard this report about the new freedom of information law that was coming out on the radio, Radio 4. And I, I, I had done, I'd used the FOI law a fair amount in America. Um, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And I looked into it, and I just thought, I want to write a book on that. Like, I, I wasn't that impressed with British print journalism. I thought it was pretty, pretty shoddy, to be honest. And I wanted to see, like, more of an empirical style, you know, sort of hot professional, quoting your sources, using data uh, type of, of articles, which I just didn't see a lot of in Britain. And then I found out, well, the reason you didn't get it in Britain is because you just did, there was no access like journalists had or citizens had no access to official information and so it was all you know they were just sort of scrabbling around trying to get people to talk and usually people would only talk you know out of a quid pro quo situation and so I thought wow this is really going to change everything about Britain like the relationship between the citizen and the state and also the type of journalism that you have here so so yeah I wrote up this book proposal and I sort of shopped it around to some different publishers and remarkably somebody <laughs> bought it and so I just get, got started doing that book called Your Right to Know yeah. and that's really what set me on this sort of path in Britain doing sort of um, my sort of transparency campaigns but then making all these freedom of information requests to, to all different parts of the state and how did you get to the well you already mentioned that you kind of did uh, a smaller version of your uh, of the MP uh, expenses scandal while you were a student. Um, how did you kind of? How did you? Because I feel like there's always that tip, like that scent that you catch when you're 
kind of chasing a piece of news. How did you catch that MP scent? <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I was looking at everything. I really mean everything about Britain, because that book, Your Right to Know, is like a directory of the British state. It's got like every part of the state and the information resources that they hold.、Um, so it was, yeah, so it was sort of like this、uh, directory of records.、Um, And so I, I had a section about central government, and in that I had a section about parliament. And I went through all the types of expenses they had. And by reading through them, I, I sort of just saw that there was like not any. A lot of them didn't require receipts,、um, so it seemed a very lax system.、Uh, and then I, I became friends with Michael Crick. Through this book, because I interviewed him quite a bit for different parts, but particularly because actually he was the original person who did that BBC Radio Four program that I heard、oh, wow, about、okay. FOI.、And、he was trying, became a controversy because he was trying on, I think it was Newsnight at the time, to break this story. It was called Betsygate, ridiculous <laughs> name, but it was about Ian. I think it was Ian Duncan Smith's wife being on the public payroll as his staff, and apparently she didn't do any work. Um, and he had tried to investigate this, and he couldn't get it through the Newsnight newsroom, and he couldn't get any、uh, documentation. Like so, they wouldn't release any of the staff expense payments. And actually, to this day, they don't. They don't. No, they, they release the raw number, but they won't release the names of the staff. So he said, he kind of yeah. So he kind of tipped me off and said, you know, I think there's a lot of. MPs who have family members on the public payroll who do no work. He said it's it's like well known in the lobby, like this is a thing, but you just can't prove it. Yeah.、Um, so that made me sort of think, oh, that's um, I think that's a good vein to mine. Like just go through systematically all the different types of expenses and FOI them. How long does something like that take? Like in terms of just the sheer hours, focus, concentration. I did this work out of ignorance because I didn't know how much work was coming down the pipe. So <laughs> it didn't、yeah. seem that hard initially, as it probably did to you when you first filed. You, it's easy to file FOI requests. It's much more difficult when you get like lots of people calling you up or asking for clarification, and then you start realizing they record things in a slightly different way.、Yeah. So it's like comparing apples and oranges, and then it's、uh, and, yeah, or then they don't, they refuse, and then you have to start going through the appeal system. But、um, I mean, for me, the big, the big sort of cathartic moment, I guess, was winning in the high court. So this is the FOI that I made ended up in litigation against Parliament because they kept refusing to release the information,、um, and they kept losing in the, in the in the appeals processes. And then eventually, they lost in the high court. And this was like the definitive ruling. It was amazing. It was like an amazing part of like British jurisprudence, like the fact that the the you know the These three top High Court judges ruled against Parliament. I don't know what, if like that rarely happens in the establishment here, and that's what led the way to them being forced to digitize all of those receipts and claims. And they were only supposed to redact a very small amount, so they were given some like three months to 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 do this scanning and redaction work. But then it became、uh, like a big thing because the MPs wanted more stuff to be redacted. They didn't, you know, they were just embarrassed. And embarrassment is not a reason to、yeah. censor material, but you know, they were really trying to use it. And then it was, it was during this sort of like long, drawn-out process where they were doing everything they could. At one point, they even tried to 
retrospectively change the freedom of information law so that it would no longer apply to Parliament. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and so that was another sneaky thing they tried to do um, that got exposed and it all fell, fell apart. But during that time is when one of the redactors in this redaction room made the, the illicit copy of the disc yeah. and um, through a middleman uh, shopped it around to different newspapers. Yeah. Now I wish I had been one of those people that was like <laughs> offered this disc, but um, the Telegraph bought it. Um, so there's quite a few newspapers, like big newspapers, like the Times that passed on it. I'm sure it's like one of their big regrets. Um, but yeah, they passed on it, and the Telegraph paid, I think, about £120,000 for this disc. And then they did you know, a lot of great reporting once they, once they got it. Did you ever think about kind of giving up and just being like, oh, I'm done, it's five years, so long? Or did it kind of, the more they tried to push back, the more you were like, no, now I really want to get this information. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, because it was like 10 years ago now, but I am quite... Uh, as I mentioned, stubborn, and um, th- th- there is a sort of odd quirk of, of character in a good investigative journalist, where you know you, you generally aren't that fussed about things up until the point people start to try and intimidate you or um, like block you, yeah. and then and then suddenly it becomes like really important that you yeah. you know expose them. Um, I was certainly not that interested until they kind of made it. I felt like they made it personal by, yeah. like, you know, doing what they did and the way they responded to me. Like, I just felt it was, you know, ridiculous. I have to take them down now. They gave me no other choice. They have that. This is just going to have to happen now. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, the aftermath of the MPA expenses scandal because, as you mentioned, the Telegraph did you know, very extensive reporting because they did buy um, the unredacted disc, the, all of the information. Do you find that people see you as the go-to person for to talk about this issue or that they see people like the guys from The Telegraph or other news uh, outlets? Um, certainly I get a lot, especially because this is a 10-year anniversary. I've been getting a lot of calls about it. Uh, there, was, there was definitely a sort of campaign in the Telegraph to sort of pretend that they were the sole uh, arbiter of this story, you know, like that it began and ended with them, which is definitely not the case. Um, and they've, you know, they've done a lot. They obviously did like the big, the big showcase work on it, um, and which for which they've been rewarded. But I do feel like, uh, I mean, I had a film, a dramatization was made about my story, I don't know that people sort of look at it. I mean, the, the stuff that I did was pretty revolutionary, really. And yeah. I don't mean I to mean, sort of literally passed a law. You had to go to court. That's kind of setting that precedent. I'm sure has helped many, many journalists now, and will continue in the future. Yeah, and I mean, what the Telegraph did, the reporting was great, but they didn't change. Um, they changed journalism a bit in the fact that they weren't doing what British newspapers usually do, which is like just make it about one person or one party. You know, they did they did do like a systematic investigation of the entire system, and that was good. And it was all based on like empirical evidence, which was the disc. But they bought it, and um, 
the irony of it is, like, they never, they did actually have a reporter who was, like, uh, at the time, one of my co-litigants. He worked at the Sunday Telegraph at the time, and they didn't support him. They wouldn't give him a lawyer, um, and so he basically just fought himself with the help of my lawyer. I would share my, uh, like, my skeleton argument with, with him and my other piece of papers from the bundle and stuff, um, because I thought it was important that there be, you know, multiple people suing Parliament, not just some random yeah. American woman. Yeah. Um, that's a bit weird that they wouldn't support their own person, kind of, and that you were the one that had to do it. Do you kind of um, look back on it now and think, God damn it, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have pressure thrown him out and just kept everything to myself. No, because that was the whole point. I was trying to do journalism differently. I mean, buying something is not doing it differently. It's the same old system. And I wanted to do something differently. Um, and even the way that we uh, we worked together was, was very different than... Like in British, British... I found... I remember going to a Society of Editors conference once in the Lake District, and the and it's still the same, actually. You know, the papers all sit at their own table. It's incredibly tribal. Like, at that conference, they were, like, throwing bread rolls. Like, the News of the World paper was literally throwing bread rolls at the Guardian table. And I just thought, what the F is that? I mean, you know, you guys are already so under threat. Like, don't you even see, like, you need to stick together because... You know, you're up against like powerful institutions who are trying to break you. Um, you know, why are you sort of all scrabbling around for these crumbs from the king's table? Like, why don't you just take on the king? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what I want. I wanted to do, and I thought, well, in order to do that, you really just you've got to like ditch these petty battles, yeah. which are more battles of like ego and I would say like sort of male importance and things like this. Hundred percent. I agree. I agree with that. A hundred percent. Especially after doing this course, it's been very like everything is just so ego driven. But Every- we should talk about feminism. Oh, we should. We, we definitely need to talk about feminism and this course, feminism and the world. Um, so. The kind of the inspiration for for this podcast, as I mentioned in the trailer, is a situation that happened um, during our course, during Political Headlines Week, um, where the people, Tim Shipman and um, the other guy from the Telegraph. Christopher Hope. Christopher Hope. There you go. I I never remember his name, Um, which I'm sure he's not used to, but here I am. Um, They came in and they kind of took credit for Heather's work and kind of mentioned her as a throwaway, even though they probably would have never been able to even write those stories um, had it not been for her going to court and fighting for it. Um, And as a female student in this course, and I know that my female colleagues felt the same way, we were all a bit disheartened by it. And then there was a tweet by the journalism department that Heather replied to, and that kind of set this the internet ablaze kind of um the city city journalism internet the city journalism department into madness um but give some context can you remember what the what the tweets were well the tweets were um here is tim shipman and christopher hope talking about breaking the mp expenses scandal and then it was on private eye that you um oh well let me just come in on that because Yeah. yeah i saw i saw that tweet from my own university, where I am 
for, where it was a professor of investigative journalism. And I just thought, really? Like, really? Y you know, even you guys are, like, giving credence to this, like, mythology that just a bunch of guys, uh, self-important guys, are solely responsible for this story. Um, and I just, like, couldn't let it stand. So, yeah, that's a great... I, I mean, I have to take a lot of issue with Twitter, but the great thing is, it, it just, you know, you could just directly communicate. Talk back. Yeah. yeah. Which I did, um, and I said, I think you'll find that I spent five years working on that story, and if anyone can take credit to break it, it was me. Yeah. And it's quite like, you know, you might say, oh gosh, isn't that uppity, a bit egotistic? No, it, we <laughs> all thought it was amazing. Like, I remember uh, we had like group chats and stuff, and everyone was like screenshotting, being like, did you see how they replied? Hell yeah! It, everyone was like excited that, because it is kind of expected for women to not say anything and kind of let it slide. So we thought it was amazing that you spoke up and were like, no, um, excuse me, I'm the one who broke it. Yeah, and even when I did that tweet, you know, this is the, I guess this is like the internalized patriarchy that exists in all of us women, is that, you know, I did have like a doubt, like, oh, should I do that? Does that like look bad? People are going to think I'm really egotistical. And then I thought, fuck it, you know? Yeah. Like, so what if they do? I actually did a shit ton of work. I know for a fact that those, you know, political report, political editors, um, they, they, they obviously do a lot of work too. But they didn't do, like, the donkey work on that story. Yeah. You know, they weren't doing the digging and the investigative work. And, in fact, there was a lot of... It was, like, you know, a very good female reporter in the Daily Telegraph who did, like, some of the biggest stories who's largely forgotten about. Her name's Holly Watt. And, you know, she did amazing stuff. But because she doesn't have that big, bombastic, male de you know, voice demanding attention, um, people just sort of forget about her. And then the people who are you know, going around sort of braying about it. Everybody then thinks, oh, well, it was all them. Yeah. But it was not, guys. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And I just, I, I didn't want to be complicit in that system. And, uh, you know, that's the problem with women silencing their voice, is that you actually end up being complicit and, you know, sort of you know, keep alive this mythology that men do everything and women do nothing or just, you know, support the men in their sort of help meet role. Which, if you actually look at a lot of history, like you find that's not true. Yeah, women behind every successful man. <laughs> there's literally twenty women who are not getting credit for the work that they've done. Is what usually I found. Did it sting in particular because it came from a place that you work in, and you're literally well, you were not anymore, but you were the head of the masters in investigative journalism. Like they hired you for this position, and then this happens in at City. Yeah, I was. And I did think if, I, I mean, who knows if it would be different if I was a man, but, you know, I do think that they would maybe think twice. If I was, like, a man, they probably wouldn't have so cavalierly taken credit for it yeah. in my own university. They might have been a bit more circumspect. Yeah. Probably because, you know, they just expect that I'd be quiet about it. Um, and I think it's a good lesson because I wasn't quiet about it, you know. I tweeted about it. I... Um, you know, it was written about in private eye. It was quite a... I mean, things have changed now. It used to be that I would be the one pilloried, you know? Society would come after me for daring to open my mouth. And it has changed a bit because, you know, people people sort of criticised, uh, you know, Christopher Hope. Um, 
and he got a lot of back, you know, back, back chat on it, and to the point that like he phoned me up and was like oh, quite really? apologetic yeah. and said, "I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I did give you credit. Uh, I, I mean, I wasn't there, so I only have like hearsay to go on. But yeah, he was, he was, you know, com- he was like contrite, and I've seen him since then, and he's been very pleasant. And they, uh, as a result, you know, they were doing this big, the Telegraph's doing this big 10-year anniversary." film and uh, podcast and they invited me on and I had to have my own episode in there so <laughs> as you should <laughs> as you should um, did the university tell you anything about it did they mention it did anyone kind of apologize no no did you want them to um, well I mean you, they can't really control what people say in their in their class oh yeah that, that's true um, how did you um, obviously this was facilitated by another lecturer on the course. How did you feel about him also kind of not having your back a little bit? Yeah, so this is um, this is a guy who, you know, I respect as a journalist, and he's a big political journalist. And there is definitely a thing amongst political journalists where it can be like, a, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't even know if I could say it's an, all, an old boys club because there's a lot of women powerful women political journalists nowadays um but there does seem to still be like the more you sort of uh sort of shout and the bigger ego the more important your people think you are and I sort of feel like this colleague of mine sort of sort of fell into this trap that you know because these guys have big prestigious political editor jobs because they you know talk quite confidently about breaking this story he puts that above me who isn't a political editor and doesn't go around you know bragging all the time about what I did what's what's next for you you're not going to be at city anymore um didn't this have anything to do with your decision to leave or was this did you just decide that you know you were kind of done and wanted to do something else um this particular incident didn't but um I guess it's about value, and I know that I brought a lot of value to that course. And like we had the biggest admissions that in the history of this course um, when I took over. And you know the course has got great ratings, and it's really highly respected. And I wasn't, uh, but I wasn't on a on a. I was only on a half-time contract, and um, I argued that it was much more than that. And in fact, it's been re-advertised as a, almost a full-time position, which it used to be, uh, but on a much lower pay grade. So I sort of said to them, like, you know, this is a, you need to pay me what I'm worth. Part of the reason I took this job as a part-time is because I wanted to, to have time to do my own investigations and write my books. As it turned out, it was more of a full-time job. They only, <laughs> I was only getting paid half-time. So I was getting kind of the worst of both worlds. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to, write my books and do my own investigations and and if you're not being valued in the place where you clearly have brought loads of of value then it's kind of just ditch them do you feel like there because there is that heavy male lecturer course directors all of that that your female students feel kind of oh should should we be here should we speak louder like how do we navigate this world, kind of? I mean, there's quite a lot of women running courses here yeah. now. Um, 
Yeah, and certainly it's improved a lot. And I, st I still, I mean, yeah, I still think like the, the course is amazing, and what you learn at, at the university is great. I loved teaching, particularly investigative journalism, because it is seen as this like macho, you know, type of journalism. A bit a newspaper reporting as well, and and I've always sort of sought that out. Like I wanted to be in these quite masculine fields. Um, and I wasn't like afraid of taking on the yeah. men, you know, to, to get in there. Uh, and I want, like, I, I think, well, what I hope I do for my all my students, but I particularly spend a lot, of, like, I particularly sort of, I don't want to say target, but I direct a lot of my comments to the female students because, like, I can see the difference. Even you know, everybody thinks like, oh yeah, young women, you know, they're they're all they're all different now, and they're all sort of you know post-feminism and stuff and that is not the case like I look at the difference between my male and female students and certainly I've noticed like across the board more kind of mental health issues amongst and I think every every educator will say this like it's got like the amount of of, of incidents uh, with people suffering from mental health is going up um but the thing I notice gender wise is like men the male students will will are, are don't have a lot of qualms about speaking up or asking questions. There's not a lot of self-doubt, at least obviously. Um, and and with with quite a few of the women students, they're often very good students, but they're full of self-doubt. Uh, they don't think they're good enough. You know, they sort of silence themselves. And it's this kind of myth. And I know, like lots of people f buy into it. It's this like idea that if you sound confident and certain that you actually know what's going on, and like I keep saying to them, just because people sound confident doesn't mean they know jack shit about shit. You know, they really probably just a total fool. Like the more certain people are about something, the more you can be guaranteed they're a complete ignoramus. Um, and the more self-important somebody is, you can also be guaranteed that they probably don't know anything. Um, so you know, it's it's the uh, it's the uncertainty that ma that actually makes you like a thoughtful person, a good journalist, and that's also why I, I kind of get annoyed about our whole society where we value this sort of bombast, overconfidence, um, and sort of think like, oh, that makes people a good leader, and it's like, but it doesn't actually. You know, I think like the world is seen enough of like this model of like male values of like bombast, overconfidence, aggression, uh, arrogance, um, control. You know, I personally am fed up with it, and I look at these people and think like you are not actually good leaders, and you are actually really ignorant. And like, why don't we have a? Why don't we sort of start to re reevaluate like what it actually means to be a good leader? Like maybe it actually means cooperation and listening to people and uh, not being like totally, I mean not, I don't mean being wishy-washy, but to have this sort of like level of certainty about how things should be. Yeah. You just can't have it in life because nobody knows the future. Like fact, zero people know the future. So anybody who claims that they do is a liar and, you know, a snake oil pet. I think what the world needs is a specifically feminist investigative journalism unit. <laughs> uh, 
Um, like a kind that of pro public. You can set it up. You can set I it would up. love to set it up. I would love to. Like this is my kind of dream. It's like a pro publica, but about investigating the patriarchy, the cost of patriarchy, like empirically quantifying how much that political ideology costs the world in terms of, you know, violence against women and children. Um, lost work hours, lost human potential. Yeah, I, I like this idea. So that's kind of your dream, is to kind of have that set Well, up. so that's the thing, investigative journalism-wise, that's what, that's, I'd be quite keen, that's really what I'd like to look into. On the other, uh, my other interests, I'm writing novels, so the thing I really wanted to do when I was young, like I'm doing, I'm doing it, I'm writing these novels, um, I've, yeah, I'm sort of on the I'm on the very long process of, of getting it published. <laughs> yeah. Um, do, would you ever see yourself teaching again, maybe, in the future? I hope so. I really, I really enjoy teaching. And um, I, I see a lot of pro- I mean, there's a lot of problems around the, the way that journalism has been uh, academicized, like put into this academic context. And I would love to, like, just do like a invest you know a sort of standalone journalism course and yeah. um, I think that would be really great um, yeah so I'm sort of open to opportunities if they arise in terms of teaching yeah. okay, guys you gotta you have to hit Heather up for these <laughs> opportunities because this sounds amazing this sounds like the industry change progress that we need to kind of make the industry suck a little bit less because I do feel like sometimes you do get a bit beaten down by it. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna thank Heather so much for taking the time to come and sit down with me and talk so openly about um, well everything that we've talked about. Um, it's been it's really been a pleasure and thank you so much. Thanks very much. All right, good luck. <laughs>